Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We are today in chapter 7, a, a, a chapter that has um, some difficulties in it and could potentially have some confusions in it and over the history of the church, unfortunately, has uh, started a number of arguments as people have read it and um, interpreted it. As I mentioned before, when we began our study of the book of Revelation, I want us to keep in mind that there are truths that we hold close, that we hold dear, that we hold within a tight fist, the truths that Jesus will return, the truth that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and the truth that we will all uh, reside in that new heaven and new earth in glorified bodies, worshiping and serving God forever. And we will touch on that a little bit this week. But there are some interpretations of Revelation that are not those tight-fisted truths. They are areas of grace. And I may proclaim something today that you may disagree with. And I ask that you would meet me with grace if that is the case. And if you wholeheartedly agree with what I proclaim today is the interpretation of this. Um, Beyond those tight-fisted truths that we hold, Um, You know, when you come across somebody who may not agree with our interpretation of this, hopefully you will deal with them in grace as well. Because brothers and sisters, we are all just that, brothers and sisters who will spend eternity in God, worshiping him and serving him. And how we got there at that point will not matter beyond the fact that we look back and see God's glory in the moments that we lived as we did move from point A to that glorious point B in his presence. So with that in mind, we look at Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. A hundred and forty four thousand from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, twelve thousand were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. 
praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let us pray. Our God and Father, as we approach this, this word today, these words that, that are inspired by you, that are profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, I ask that you would open our eyes. Lord, help us not to get lost in the weeds of, of meanings of words and numbers of people, but to remember that we are called to forever worship you for the salvation that belongs to you and for the praise and the glory and the wisdom and the thanks and the honor and the power that belongs to you and to you alone. Lord, open our eyes so that we might see you. Open our eyes so that we might see the glory of our Savior and guide us through the power of your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are, are three visions throughout the book of Revelation that deal with uh, a series of seven things that happen. There's the seven seals, which we've been looking at. We've made it up to the sixth seal, and we're going to, and, and then we'll move on to the seventh seal after today. And then there's the seven trumpets, which follows immediately upon the seven seals, and then seven bowls immediately, uh, actually not immediately following, but following the seven trumpets. And each of them grows out of the other, and each of them are repetitions or recapitulations of the history of the world from the ascension of Christ until his return. And in between the sixth and seventh of each of those three series of sevenths, there is a break, or if you play video games, a cut scene. It's a scene where the action stops and then suddenly the, the camera shifts to another area, to another, another piece of information that you need to know about the rest of the vision or the rest of the visions that are coming. And today we have that cut scene here in chapter 7 as we get a look back as well as a look forward to help us answer more clearly than we already have the, the question from Revelation six seventeen, who can stand? As we look forward and as we look back, we will see that our security in tribulation comes through or in Jesus' atoning blood which is God's seal on his people. So we begin with a look back. This opens with these words that we typically see as a signal for John to be telling us that this is a new vision, these words after this or after these things. But we know it's not a completely new vision because as I said, we are expecting seven seals to be opened before we get to the end of God's revealed history there upon the scroll. Well, we've only gotten to six so far and the seventh will come in the first verse of chapter eight. So this is still contained within the vision of the seven seals and is a look, an interlude, a cut scene, if you will, 
into a little bit deeper issue of of how long and who shall stand. And in this opening scene, this look back, we see the writers held, these angels held at the four corners of the earth, holding back the winds of God's judgment until something happens. Most likely these four angels are the writers that we looked at at the beginning of chapter six, the writers who who bring death and destruction, God's judgment in the form of death and destruction that comes through war, through pestilence, through famine, and through death in general. And, And this angel cries out in a loud voice, hold on a bit before these powers of death are unleashed upon the world. Because something has to happen before these powers are unleashed. And in language that reminds us of our passage from Ezekiel chapter 9 earlier, we are told that another angel enters the scene so that the angel can seal, put a mark upon the foreheads of those whom God has set apart. As we looked at Ezekiel 9, as we read Ezekiel 9 earlier, we saw God there before before Ezekiel. And Ezekiel watched this, this scene unfold as the soldiers of God come to do war against the nation of Israel. And this man, this, this angelic being, comes with the soldier with a, with a writing kit in his hand to mark a seal upon those who are weeping over the idolatry of Israel. Those who are repentant, those who have not turned their back upon God, God says before the judgment falls upon Jerusalem, Set these people apart for safety. Set these people apart. Seal them to me with the mark on their forehead. That's the picture that we have here in Revelation chapter 7. As as the angelic being goes forth to mark the foreheads of those whom God is sealing. We know from Revelation 14.1 that the seal is the name of God and of the Lamb that is placed upon these people to place them under his protection. We get so caught up in Revelation 13. What is the mark of the beast? Brothers and sisters, you and I do not have to worry about that because we have the mark of the lamb upon us. We are sealed by God and for God, for his protection against the powers that will come in attack, that will come to do their worst against the church. And so we see this sealing upon the people of God. And we also see that a very specific number of people are sealed. We, we hear that the number sealed are, is a 144,000 from all the different tribes of Israel. Now, this number over the years has caused a lot of speculation, a lot of confusion, a lot of argument, unfortunately, over the centuries since the the, the letter was written and this, this, this speculation, this confusion, this argument has been made worse sometimes by the list of tribes that we have here. You know, when we look at the Great Tribulation, we'll see, uh, you know, Sinclair Ferguson said, you know, if John had just spent maybe a paragraph or even a sentence here or there throughout the book of Revelation, it could have, could have caused us a lot less turmoil and given us a lot more peace. But he didn't. We have to do our best, our due diligence, as the confession says, to interpret and to see this. But the, the 144,000 is a number that we see that it, it, is, it is a very precise number. It literally is 12 squared times 10 cubed. 
It is 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. Why is that important? You think I'm just, you know, bragging about my math skills today? Absolutely not. There are 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 apostles. We'll see this reflected again when the the heavenly city descends and the name of the 12 tribes, the 12 patriarchs are written upon the gates and the name of the 12 apostles are written upon the foundation stones. And 10 is a number of completeness within Hebrew and Greek thought. And we know that whenever you see something three times, it means the most, the best. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is the most holy thing in all creation. So 12 times 12 times 12. 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10 is a complete, perfect number that God has set. It's a number that should bring us Comfort because God knows this number that has been set. And it's a number that fills up for us a little bit more of what we saw earlier when the when the saints asked, how long, sovereign Lord, chapter six, verse 10, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been complete as they had as they had been was completed. Sorry, can't talk today. Too much math. That number that is completed is a number. It's a precise number. It's a precise number that God knows. The God who numbers the hair on your head and knows every bird that flies and falls knows the precise numbers of saints who will suffer in faithfulness for their testimony, and they've been sealed for protection in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that difficulty. And you may be asking, Ike, there's a list of the tribes of Israel. Why are you saying that this applies to all of God's saints, both Old and New Testament saints, and not merely to Israel? I'm glad you asked. I believe this list here is a symbolic list as well. Why do I say that? Well, the list is out of order. Nowhere in the Old Testament where we have a list of the tribes of Israel do we have Judah listed first. Reuben is always listed first. I think it's Reuben. I'm pretty sure it's Reuben. Maybe it's Simeon. It is Reuben. Okay, yeah, Reuben's the oldest. So he would be listed first. In no other list of Old Testament saints is Dan left out. Is Ephraim left out? And no other list of the Old Testament saints, typically Levi and Joseph, are not kept in. And look at the numbers as well. They're too precise. They're too perfect there. Once again, 12 times 1,000. We have these perfect numbers from all the tribes. And then with direct context, we have here as well. Remember from Revelation 4 and 5. Revelation 5 specifically, John is told that the seal has to be opened and there's no one to open it. And he weeps. And after he weeps, one of the elders comes to him and says, don't worry. And John hears a lion who is the root of David. And when he turns, what does he see? Does he see a lion who is the root of David? No, he sees a lamb that was slain who lives again. Were there two people worthy of opening the seals? No, there was one person who was both the lion and the lamb. As we are here in this very same vision, we see the same pattern show up once again at the end of it that showed up at the beginning. He heard the number from all these different tribes. 
And when he turned and looked, he saw a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. John is giving us two descriptions here meant to give us comfort in the midst of suffering, in the midst of struggle, that all of God's people from the beginning of time until Jesus returns have been sealed and have been set apart. It's important for us to to understand and to realize as we study the New Testament, as we study the book of Revelation, that the church of God is not God's plan B. It's not something that God had to say, well, I need to kind of keep my name in people's mind until Israel finally comes to their senses and gets it right about Jesus. We are as much part of God's plan from before the foundation of the world as Israel was. We are not a replacement for the people of God named Israel. We are an extension post Resurrection, post-ascension of the people of Israel. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, Paul says this, Consider Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. He goes on later on in the book to talk about Hagar and Sarah, that the children of Hagar are not the children of promise, but the children of Sarah are the children of promise. And those who believe in Jesus Christ by faith are the children of promise. In Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul tells us that the Gentiles will be grafted into the true vine of God's people. While natural branches that were cut off could be regrafted at a future time if they have faith. Brothers and sisters, Israel is not the true vine. Jesus is the true vine. I am the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. God's plan from the beginning of time was a group of people set apart by faith. Faith in a sacrifice that only God could provide. Yes, the Old Testament sacrificial system and laws look forward to that sacrifice. We look backward to that sacrifice. But we are part of the sealed people of God. And God has set a seal on those people sovereignly. And those people who have his seal will be protected as judgments begin to fall upon this world. So we looked back to see that God has sealed a certain portion of creation to himself, to his protection, to his ownership. And now we look forward to that glorious reunion of God and those people in heaven at the end of time as as we consider this great multitude. In Genesis 17, 5, God gives Abraham a name change. God changes his name from Abram or exalted father to Abraham, or father of multitudes. At the time of this name change, Abraham had one son who he had been told would not be the son of promise, would not be the person who fulfilled the promise of nations that would come from his loins, would not fulfill the promise that he would be a blessing to the nations. Think about it. You're somewhere between 90 to 100 years old. You have one son. And he is not going to be the fulfillment of the promises that God has given you. And he has just changed your name to father of nations. If God were not involved, you may call that delusions of grandeur. 
Fast forward to John's revelation here in Revelation 17, and John sees an uncountable crowd that comes from every conceivable allegiance group possible. Are you allied to your family? Do you give allegiance to your family? Well, there are people there from every family. Do you, do you, do you base your allegiance on the language that you speak? Well, there are people there from every language. Maybe your ethnicity is your allegiance group. Well, there is every ethnicity there. Maybe you're just a good patriot. Maybe your allegiance group is to your country. Well, there are people there from every country. And they are all set apart by one thing. The seal of God that comes through, that comes through trust in the saving work of the Lamb who was slain and yet lives. These saints that are there in heaven, they are marked apart not only by the seal, but also by what they are wearing. They're wearing white robes. And we've seen in Revelation 3, 5, we saw in Revelation 6, and we'll see again in Revelation 19, that the saints are given white robes of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ that clothes, the, clothes them. We will exist eternally on the calendar between Easter and Labor Day because we will all be wearing white every single day. As we serve God, as we worship him in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be there because of the righteousness that is placed upon us. A righteousness, a, a whiteness of robe that comes through being washed in the blood of the lamb. Imagery that looks back to Leviticus 16 in the day of atonement. On that day, the high priest would make several sacrifices for the sins of, of himself and for the people. And the blood would be sprinkled from those sacrifices and on the altar of incense and on the ark of the covenant to cleanse each of those from the stain, from the defilement of sin. But it had to be done every year and the blood itself left stains. When the saints are gathered to stand before God, to worship and to serve him before all of eternity, they will be clothed in a cleansing righteousness that completely cleanses the defilement of sin that has been done once and for all. The one adopted through the work of Jesus, this righteousness is yours. It is yours now. Our world tries so hard, so hard to get rid of the guilt and the defilement, the stain of sin. They try through maybe the boosting of self-esteem or drowning the, the sense of stain and shame and the pursuit of pleasure or the comparative righteousness that, you know, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. But all human attempts to cleanse the stain of sin will fall far short. Through the life, through the death, through the resurrection of Jesus, God provides a way for the stain of human sin to be cleansed and reconciliation with God to be found. The grace of faith offered freely to the world is the means by which our filthy, tattered rags are removed. We are clothed with the glorious righteousness of Christ. Have you believed? If not, will you do so today? These saints are before the throne of God. They are clothed in white. What are they doing? Well, they're worshiping. Just as this second vision began with heavenly worship, it will close with heavenly worship as well. The saints offer their praise for the salvation that God gives. Their praise is echoed by the creatures of the earth and the angelic beings, uplifting God's name for his power, for his glory, for his majesty. This, this eternal echo of human worship and angelic worship, just back and forth for all of eternity, will ring throughout the universe and as a constant theme of the book of Revelation. 
In addition to being in the presence of God, in addition to being marked by the white robes and worshiping, they are given promises. Promises rooted in the Old Testament imagery that the Israelites were expecting when they returned to the land after their time of exile. The prophets promised that God would judge and that God would return them and that once they returned, there would be a certain set of promises that have not yet been fulfilled. They will only be fulfilled in the new heavens, in the new earth. God promises that they will forever serve and worship him before the throne of God. Echoing Isaiah chapter four, verses five and six, God promises to put his tent of protection over his people for all of eternity. Echoing once again, Isaiah 49, 10, there's a promise of no more hunger, no more thirst. From Psalm 121, which we read earlier today, is the promise that the sun will not scorch or harm the people of God. In Ezekiel 34, God promises that he will remove the sinful predatory shepherds and make himself their shepherd. The lamb on the throne is the shepherd of God's people who leads them to the promised springs of living, flowing water as promised in Psalm 23 and Psalm 36. And then finally, brothers and sisters, that promise that we so often cling to, that promise from Isaiah 25, that God will wipe away the tears, every tear of his people. Now, each of these promises, we're not going to spend a lot of time on them today because they will be expanded as we go on through the rest of the book of Revelation. But the main promise here is that the long-awaited promises of full restoration for the people of God will happen when the full number of sufferers are gathered in the new heavens and in the new earth. We know where the saints are. They're in heaven before the throne of God. We know what they'll be wearing. We know what they'll be doing. We know what they've been promised. From whence have they come? So the elder goes to John and says, do you know who these people are? John says, sir, out of all due respect, I I, I don't, but you do. Can you tell me? He said, well, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. And as I mentioned, Sinclair Ferguson says, if John had just spent maybe a sentence or two more, this would be so much easier. What does it mean that they came out of the great tribulation? Well, literally in the original language, this word says they are those who are coming out of the great tribulation. This is a present tense verb for various reasons. Most translators translate it as a past tense verb, but it is a present tense verb, which means that they are continually coming out of the great the great tribulation. As I mentioned earlier, we are studying Revelation with the understanding that is a series of visions that repeat or recapitulate the history of the world from the ascension to the return. We have already seen visions of tribulation presented as 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 John said that he was on the Isle of Patmos as a form of tribulation. That as he was suffering tribulation, he was transported to the throne room of God. We see throughout the New Testament that tribulation is a present tense reality for the people of God. And we see throughout the rest of the book of Revelation that the people of God suffer tribulation under the attacks of the evil one, under the attacks of humans, under the influence of of the evil one. So the question we have to answer is, is this a future tribulation or a present tribulation? 
And if I think, I, I believe that if we take everything that I've just mentioned, the fact that this is a present tense verb, the fact that the rest of the New Testament talks about tribulation in a, as a present tense reality, the fact that Jesus said, I suffered, you will suffer. The great tribulation is the sum total of the suffering of God's people that we are waiting to be filled for the question to be answered, how long, O Lord? All of the tribulation, all of the suffering that people go through, that the people of God go through, fills up that suffering that must take place as those who are faithful to the testimony of the one who is holy and true suffer on this world. The message here is not that there is some generation of Christians who will be sealed and protected from tribulation at some point in the future. So go be warm and well-fed in the midst of your suffering. Somebody else will be taken care of way down the road. The message here is that your, your suffering, you yourself, brothers and sisters, you and I have been sealed against the suffering that comes upon the people of God. Your sickness your age-related problems, your grief, your family strife, your struggle with mental illness, your being called names and marginalized because you cling to the truth, your suffering occurs while you yourself are sealed by God and protected by him. And these are drops of suffering, even if they are small drops compared to the suffering going on around you, these are drops of suffering that get the bucket that much closer to being full so that we can see the full glory of Jesus' return. Brothers and sisters, you are sealed and protected by God today. Not some generation in the future, but you today are sealed and protected by God. Well, what does this mean for your suffering today? It means that your suffering has glory. Your suffering is added to the suffering of Christ, not, not in any way that brings redemption or salvation, but in the sense that the fullness of suffering must occur before he returns. Now, God's not some kind of capricious meanie up in heaven going, let me watch to see how, how much these guys can suffer. No, we learned in Sunday school today, Paul talks about us, us carrying a glorious message in jars of clay. And, and that message is sealed in the jars. And to get that message out, sometimes the jars have to be broken. And that brokenness sometimes comes through our suffering, which comes through just living on this broken world. But, but as we suffer, it's, it's the power and the glory and the, the, the gospel of God that seeps out and shines through us in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that tribulation. And, and, and it gets us that much closer to Christ's return. Yes, we weep for suffering. Yes, we yes we. We, we, we groan oftentimes under its weight, but we have such a glorious weight of glory that far outweighs the suffering that we go through today, awaiting us at the end of our suffering, at the end of our earthly shame. Your suffering in this life is worthy. It's worthy of rejoicing because it shows Jesus' words to be true. In this word, he suffered, and we can expect to suffer as well. And it is worthy because it fills up what he began his suffering secured our salvation, our redemption, and our sufferings fill up the sufferings necessary for the return. Brothers and sisters, your security in suffering and tribulation comes in Jesus' atoning blood 
which is God's seal for you. So how can you know today that you are one of the ones sealed? Well, ask yourself this series of questions. Have you truly believed in the lamb that has purchased your redemption? Have you come to the end of your rope when it comes to saving yourself or proving yourself righteous before God and saying, God, I can't do it anymore. It's up to you. The lamb provided the means by which you could be sealed and set apart and made righteous. Do you desire to keep God's commandments, all of God's commandments? We've seen throughout our previous study that that Jesus not only gave his life to save us from from hell, but also to make us holy. Do you desire holiness in your life? Does the conviction of sin lead to repentance? And finally, are you willing to bear witness to the lamb in the midst of pressure to compromise? Brothers and sisters, our security is in the seal that God has placed upon us. He has set us apart for that seal and he set us apart by that seal. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for this glorious message that you have set apart a specific number of people for yourself and that they are protected. They look up toward your holy hill to see that you reside there, sovereign over all things and protecting your people from the trials, from the sufferings, from the tribulations of this earth. Help us to rest in the fact that you have sealed us for protection and that no matter what judgments fall upon this earth, we are our, our future in heaven with you is secure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go this week to serve our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, don't forget to go through the fellowship hall to get some refreshments and fellowship, but also take this blessing upon you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Spirit. We pray with the saints that have come before and will come after. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.